Hey sleuths, welcome back to Cold Case Study. I'm your host Morgan, and my co-host Houdini, Lord of Chaos, is currently sleeping in the other room because it sucks to record with him. <laughs> this week, I went down the rabbit hole on the case of Natalie Holloway on the recommendation of my friend Brittany, the host of Crime Ghoul. If you follow me at Cold Case Study on Instagram, you already know damn well how much I love this girl and her podcast. Crime Ghoul will chill you to the bone as Brittany dives deep into cases that aren't widely covered by mainstream media. Every Monday at 8 a.m., there's a new episode. It's the best way to get through the Monday morning cobwebs. Trust me. So settle in with a warm cup of coffee or listen while you down Red Bull on your morning commute because these are true crime stories that you won't want to miss. Personally, my favorite episode would have to be episode 3, Ezra McClandless. Pretty sure I said that wrong, but go check her out anyways. Today's case is on the disappearance of Natalie Holloway, an 18-year-old girl from Alabama who, on a graduation trip to Aruba with her school, got into a car and was never seen again. You know what to do, sleuths. Top off your coffee and grab your sleuth book because we're going to dive straight in and I've only got one question for you. Can you help solve this cold case? Warning, the following audio contains adult content, mentions of murder, kidnapping, rape, sexual assault, and sex trafficking. Listener discretion is advised. Natalie Ann Holloway was born on October 21st, 1986, in Clinton, Mississippi, meaning that she would have been, or is turning, 36 in just 19 days. Natalie was an unbelievably smart, kind, and beautiful girl who had secured herself a full-ride scholarship to the University of Alabama, where she was going to pursue a pre-med degree. Natalie was the first of two children born to Dave and Beth Holloway, who divorced in 1993. Beth got remarried, this time to a prominent businessman from Alabama. His name was Jug Twitty, who, by all accounts, was a doting stepfather to Natalie. In 2005, Natalie graduated from Mountain Brook High School, where she was a member of the National Honor Society and the Dance Squad, as well as many other extracurricular activities. To celebrate graduation, she and 124 fellow students went on an unofficial school trip to Aruba. Things are already getting hinky at this point because for 125 kids, there were only seven chaperones. That's 17 kids per chaperone, which was, in my opinion, way too many. But I guess maybe in 2005, like, people weren't as aware of the dangers posed in foreign countries? I don't know, guys. I was five at the time. The 125 teenagers who were all of legal drinking age in Aruba stayed at an all-inclusive run by Holiday Inn. According to Police Commissioner Gerald Dompig, who took over the investigation after the original commission... The... Sweet Jesus. The original commissioner retired. The teenagers engaged in, quote, wild partying, a lot of drinking, lots of room switching every night, end quote. It should also be noted that this claim is backed up by the fact that the Holiday Inn told the group that they were never welcome to return. Natalie, who by all accounts was a straight and narrow kind of girl, went a little wild with the freedom in Aruba. 
But I feel like I should specify, this does not justify any bad things that happened to her. Natalie was confirmed to have been drinking from sunup to sundown, starting with cocktails in the morning, going to clubs at night with her friends. There are varying reports on whether or not Natalie was doing or in possession of drugs during her time in Aruba. Some classmates claim that she was at least in possession of drugs. Some claim that she had been experimenting with them, but her family adamantly denies these claims. Her family denies them to the point where they themselves have been accused of coercing her high school friends into not saying anything that would make them or Natalie look bad i.e. that she had done drugs. Which, like, if she was doing drugs, then so what? She's 18 in a new place, experimenting with things that are new to her. I don't condone drug use, but I don't condemn those who do it either. The alleged overstep by her family trying to control the narrative is a theme that repeats itself throughout the story, so you should write it down in your sleuth book. I know we just started, but I want to remind everyone that this story is going to get dark, and you need to take care of yourselves. If you need to pause this episode and go watch some Scooby-Doo for a few minutes, I totally understand. But continuing, on the night of Sunday, May 29th, Natalie went out to a local club with her school friends. The nightclub was well known and was called Carlos and Charlie's. An interview with one of Natalie's friends who was there that night confirmed that Natalie was indeed drinking and was being sociable with a 17-year-old boy whom they had met earlier in the Holiday Inn Casino. This boy was Joran Vandersloot. Vandersloot was the son of Paulus, a prominent lawyer in Aruba, who in 2005 was in the process of becoming a judge, and Anita, an art teacher. Joran Vandersloot was described to be a soccer star and tennis star, even competing with his father at doubles tennis at the Moet at Chandon Anniversary Cup in 2005. I realized that I butchered that name, but he played doubles at a tennis tournament. Anita described her son as bright, athletic, with a problem with lying, and a tendency to sneak out at night to gamble at casinos. Euron was not alone at Carlos and Charlie's on May 29th. Accompanying him were the Kaupo brothers, Deepak, who was 21, and Satish, who was 18. Natalie was last seen leaving the nightclub at 1.30 a.m. on Monday, May 30th, with Euron and the Kaupo brothers. Getting into Deepak's car would be the last time she was seen alive. Later, Monday morning, the 124 teenagers boarded buses to the airport and quickly quickly realized that Natalie was nowhere to be seen. At first, they laughed, joking that she was probably just hungover and had overslept, as she had done a few times on the trip. But when the chaperones checked Natalie's room, they found her packed luggage with her passport untouched. Within a few hours of Natalie's no-show appearance for her flight home, her parents, Beth and Jug, were on a private jet flying to Aruba with her friends, and her senior picture, clutched in their hands, determined that they would not leave that island until they found her. Natalie's friends on the trip let Beth know that Euron and the Kalpo brothers were the last people that Natalie was seen with. 
So Beth went to the Aruban police with this information Im immediately, but was told that Aruba was a vacation island. Natalie was probably just sleeping off a hangover somewhere, was having fun with some boys, and had forgotten about her flight. They refused to consider Natalie a missing person until the standard 24-hour mark had passed. Once it had, the Twitties, Natalie's parents, and two Aruban policemen went to the Vandersloot home to question Euron. Initially, Euron denied even knowing who Natalie was, but then told, told the first of what would be many lies. Euron said that they drove Natalie to the California lighthouse area of Arashi Beach where she wanted to see some sharks, but assured them that they dropped her off at the hotel around 2 in the morning. They claimed that at the hotel, Natalie fell but refused any help, and then as they drove away, a man dressed consistently with an island security guard approached her. Johan Vandersloot's story was corroborated by Deepak Kalpo, who was at the house at the time. Almost immediately, hundreds of volunteers and thousands of civil servants who had been given time off by the government began the search for Natalie Holloway. They searched the entire island as well as the surrounding waters. Fifty Dutch Marines searched the entire shoreline. A Reuben Banksed Aruban Banks raised $20,000 and other forms of aid for the search and rescue volunteers. Beth, Natalie's mother, was even given free lodging at a Holiday Inn in the exact same room where Natalie had been. Then they were like, ooh, our bad, and moved her to the presidential suite at the nearby Wyndham Hotel. Can you imagine being the desk clerk that... Did that mess up? I would not want to be them. But in all seriousness, while we're talking about the hotel, there's something else that's a little hinky for you to jot down in your sleuth book. While Natalie was never seen returning to the hotel on the night of her disappearance, no one seems to be quite certain if the cameras were even on that night. Beth Twitty has made various conflicting statements and the original police commissioner, Jan van Der Stratton implied that Natalie didn't have to pass by the cameras in the lobby to return to her room. Commissioner Van Der Stratton is very important, so write it down, y'all. On June 5th, there was hope. The Aruban police arrested Nick, John, and Abraham Jones, who had been employed as security guards at a nearby hotel that was then closed for renovations. The potential charges against them were suspicion of murder and kidnapping. The men were known for cruising around the hotel district to pick up women, but the largest influence in their arrest was the statement made by Joran and the Calpo brothers that Natalie had been approached by a security guard when they dropped her off. John and Jones were released eight days later with no charges being officially filed. During those eight days, Yon and the Calpo brothers were arrested on the suspicion of kidnapping as well as murder. Within three days of Natalie's disappearance, the three boys were under intense sus suspicion, and surveillance was conducted using wiretaps and email monitoring. Police Commissioner Dompeg, the second police commissioner, indicated that the reason 
that there was not enough evidence to hold the three boys on the charges against them was due to the meddling of Beth and Jug Twitty, who pressured the police into making arrests without tangible evidence. Euron's father, the prominent lawyer and almost judge, was also detained for questioning, as it was alleged that when something bad happened between Euron and Natalie, he had called his dad to clean up his mess and dispose of the body. Euron's father would also end up later suing the police for damages, claiming that since he was detained, it hurt his reputation. I believe he was granted funds, but that the ruling was later overturned, but I'm not quite sure. During the time that Euron and the Calpo brothers were, like, imprisoned, they didn't stick to one story, but told slightly different versions of their original story. Instead of dropping Natalie off in the front of the hotel where she was approached by a security guard, they instead insisted that they dropped her off by the fisherman huts on the beach owned by the hotel, which was refuted by a group of local fishermen who had been there that night, claiming that Euron was lying unless they were all deaf and blind. Then Euron claimed that he was not there at all when Natalie was left at the hotel, saying that he had been dropped off at home and the Calpo brothers were the ones who took Natalie back to the hotel. This last story was dismissed as false, as Commissioner Dompig stated, quote, That story doesn't check out at all. He just wanted to screw Deepak. They had great arguments about this in front of the judge. Because their stories didn't match. This girl, she was from Alabama. She's not going to stay in the car with two black kids. We believe the second story. End quote. While the statement isn't exactly the most Socially acceptable, the judge agreed, and the Calpo brothers were released on July 4th, while Euron was detained for 60 more days. In August, the three boys were arrested again, under allegations that they had inappropriate contact with an underage girl before Natalie's disappearance, but the whole case was thrown out. Commissioner Dompig later claimed that the whole thing was orchestrated to get the boys to confess to Natalie's murder. When they were released, however, there was a stipulation that the boys had to remain available to police, but this was lifted on September 14th. In the months following Natalie's disappearance, Euron would give many, many conflicting interviews and accounts of the story of that night. Many say that he did it just to get money. At one point, he claimed that Natalie wanted to have sex with him, but he refused because he didn't have a condom. Another time, he said that he and Natalie were alone on the beach, but he was picked up at 3 a.m. by Satish Kalpo, which Satish's lawyers disputed as their client was asleep at the time, or so they claimed. At the start of 2006, Commissioner Dompig made an assertion that Natalie's Natalie wasn't murdered, but probably died of alcohol poisoning or overdosed on drugs and someone hit her body. If you couldn't tell by the sarcastic tone right there, this statement rubs me the wrong way. Like, he's blaming Natalie for her possible death, as well as dismissing the severity of her disappearance and possible murder. Like, if she was drinking a lot and passed out while with Euron and the Calpo brothers and they just, I don't know, dumped her into the ocean thinking she was dead, they should still be charged with 
obstruction of justice, abuse of a corpse, or even involuntary manslaughter. But no, he just casually hinting that Natalie died because she was irresponsible and someone just hit her body. Like, that isn't a crime in itself at all. Soon after making this statement, though, Don Pig retired. After his retirement, the Dutch National Police took over the Holloway case, working in tandem with the Aruban authorities. After the Dutch took over, Guido Weaver, the son of an Aruban politician, was held on suspicion of assisting in the abducting, battering, and killing of Natalie. But after being questioned for six days in the Netherlands, he was released when a deal was struck between the prosecutor and Weaver's attorney. It didn't say what the deal was, but I'm just like, really? What is it? Why did you release the son of a politician who could have murdered somebody, like, without telling the public anything? Very confused. Very curious. But in April of 2007, two years after Natalie disappeared, Euron Vandersloot published his book, The Case of Natalie Holloway, apologizing for giving false testimonies, but insisting that he was innocent. Which is hinky. If you're innocent, why lie, you know, 50 times? Write a book apologizing for lying, but not tell the truth about what happened that night. In November of 2007, Euron and the Cowpo brothers were arrested on different charges. This time it was suspicion of involvement in manslaughter and causing serious bodily harm that resulted in the death of Holloway. However, they were released before Christmas due to lack of evidence, and on December 18th, Prosecutor Hans Most declared the case officially closed due to lack of evidence and money to continue the investigation. Which, a lot of money was spent on the search and rescue aspect and the investigation itself. The Aruban police spent over $3 million, which was over 40% of their yearly budget. But now it's time for Euron's next confession, which, spoiler alert, he would recant. On November 24, 2008, Fox News aired an interview in which Euron confessed to selling Natalie into sexual slavery and that his father, you know, the judge and the lawyer, paid off two cops when they learned that Natalie had been trafficked to Venezuela. After Euron faked a phone call between himself and his father, speaking in a lower tone to imitate Paulos, on February 10th, 2010, Paulos died of a heart attack while playing golf. The stress must have gotten to the man. I know I usually wait until the end of the recording to ramble about what I think, but we're doing it right now. I do think that Euron trafficked Natalie. Why? Because after he was released and the Holloway case was officially closed in 2005, Euron's friend returned from Thailand with a group of exotic dancers that he sold into a Dutch prostitution ring. So Euron assumed the name Murphy Jenkins, enrolled in Vrangsit University, I began bragging to friends over email about the exotic dancers he was fooling into thinking that they were going to Holland with him, he was in Thailand at the time, and that they were going to dance in Holland. But instead, he sold them into sexual slavery for $13,000 a pop. Sorry, for that was insensitive, but I don't know how else to phrase it. <laughs> 
Okay, um, a video of Yoron with a group of underage girls in a hotel room was captured by the Thai police, and two of the girls there were never seen again after that video was taken. So, the Thai police did open an investigation into Murphy Jenkins, aka Yoron Vandersloot. Only when his father died did Yoron finally return to Holland. If you guys haven't read the book, Half the Sky, I 100% recommend it. It brings into light a lot of just disadvantages that women across the world have and actually talks about sex trafficking in Thailand and the involvement that the police and officials usually have in it. And it's incredibly disturbing, but it's an amazing book to read or listen to. I had to read it for class, like, but I totally recommend it. So I think it's 100% possible that Euron wetted his feet in the sex trade before expanding into Thailand. Like, you'd think it would be hard to find a sex trafficker, but it's sadly not. I go to school in an area known for sex trafficking, and one of my roommates freshman year was accosted by a pair of decent-looking guys on a night out with their friends. And later in the night, those guys were trying to get the girls to meet them at random places. Alone. Let's just say she got directly back on the bus to school, did not pass go, did not sell for $13,000, and did not find out what poor Natalie Holloway may have gone through. I know that this is not a joke and that that sounded like I was making fun of it, but it's not. I just have a very dark sense of humor and I am just, it's how I cope with all this dark stuff that we're going through. But the silver lining that my mom pointed out when I was talking to her about this case is that if Natalie was sold into sexual slavery, she may still be alive. And now that she's in her mid-30s, we can hope against all odds that they will release her and she can come home. Though, if you're still iffy on the sex trafficking theory, just think of it like this. Euron's father was a prominent lawyer and judge. And the first police commissioner who dealt with the Holloway case, Vanderstraten, who we wrote down in her sleuth books, yeah, he was Yoren's godfather, leading me and many others to believe that his father, his godfather, and the Yoruban police covered for Yoren and suppressed evidence that would have connected Yoren to Natalie's disappearance. Back to the facts of the case, though, in March of 2010, Yoren contacted Natalie's parents and promised to tell them how Natalie died and where he hid her body if he was given $25,000 up front and a total fee of $250,000. So Beth and Jug Twitty contacted the FBI and asked for help. So the FBI coughed up the money and Euron told a lie. That his father had hid, Natalie, had hid Natalie's body under the foundation of the house he was overseeing being built at the time. But the timelines didn't match up. The house was not under construction when Natalie disappeared. Euron was then brought up on extortion and wire fraud charges. An arrest warrant went to Interpol, and on June 30th, Euron was in indicted of on the charges. The court only sought the return of the $25,000 paid to Euron for the location of Natalie's body, as far as I could find. In an interview, he explained why he did it, saying, quote, 
I wanted to get back at Natalie's family. Her parents had been making my life tough for five years, end quote. Like, really? That's why you committed extortion? But again, moving on. A month before the indictment, however, five years to the day of Natalie's disappearance, Euron murdered Stephanie Tatiana Flores Ramirez in Lima, Peru. Like with Natalie, Stephanie had met Euron at a casino the day she went missing. Stephanie sadly went with Euron to his room, where the 21-year-old woman was beaten to death in room 309, Euron's room. Medical reports show that Stephanie and Euron did not have sexual contact, and that she suffered blunt force trauma to the head, causing a brain hemorrhage, a cranial fractured, and that she showed signs of asphyxiation. Stephanie was a year away from graduation at the University of Lima, where she was pursuing a degree in business. Her father was a prominent businessman and even ran for president of Peru in 2006. When the police found her car 50 blocks from the hotel, all of her money that she was known to keep in her car, her jewelry, and even her ID was missing. There was over $11,000 that we know of in her car that was all missing. Police also found date rape drugs in her car. Another reason why I think that Natalie was sold into sexual slavery and perhaps after taking advantage of Stephanie with the date rape drugs, he planned to do the same to her, but got angry and beat her to death instead. Disgustingly enough, people blame Beth Twitty for Stephanie's death, saying that if the desperate and still grieving woman hadn't paid Euron that $25,000 to get information on her daughter's death, then he wouldn't have had the money to take the trip to Peru. Which I find horrifying that the only person who is at fault for Stephanie's death is Yoran, her killer, no one else. After killing Stephanie, Yoran fled to Chile, where he was quickly apprehended. During his short-lived time on the run, he messaged an ex-girlfriend for money so that he could buy a ticket back to Aruba, despite having just stolen $11,000 from Stephanie. When caught on June 7, 2010, Euron initially protested his innocence, despite his DNA being found under Stephanie's fingernails, her blood being found on his clothing, and the fact that he had Googled countries that do not extradite in Latin America on the computer in his hotel room after Stephanie had been murdered. Then, after a few hours of interrogation, Euron confessed. Prosecutors believe that this, I'm innocent, oh, okay, I'm guilty, was a ploy to reduce his sentence from murder to manslaughter, as manslaughter had a lesser, like, minimum sentencing. A fun fact about Peru is that they do not have capital punishment and, or life imprisonment unless in, like, serious cases. Like, I mean, murder is serious, but, like, they're I don't know what the standard is, but it's got to be worse than murder. In his written confession, Euron said that he left Stephanie alone in his room to get them some coffee and bread, you know, like a gentleman, and he returned to find her using his laptop. Some speculate that she found evidence connecting him to Natalie's murder, 
because of the statement he made, quote, I do not, I did not want to do it. The girl intruded into my personal life. She didn't have any right. I went to her and I hit her. She was scared. We argued and she tried to escape. I grabbed her by the neck and hit her, end quote. But don't worry. After he killed her, he drank the espresso he bought for the both of them to counter the fatigue of murdering someone before fleeing to Chile. So, you know, good coffee didn't go to waste. <laughs> wow, I am really at it with the sarcasm tonight. I am sorry, guys. Euron would later try to recant this statement, but the claim was rejected by the court and he was charged with first-degree murder and robbery. Euron was held at the Miguel Castro Minima <laughs> Maximum Security Prison and tried to secure himself an extradition to an Aruban prison by offering to reveal the location of Natalie's body. Again. Luckily, President Perez said that there would be no extradition until Euron stood trial in Peru. After months of legal stalling, Euron Vandersloot pled guilty to qualified murder and simple robbery, robbery against Stephanie Flores and was sentenced to 28 years in prison on January 13, 2012. He will be released on June 10, 2038 not that long, not that far away, just 18 more years. Weirdly enough, though, in 2014, Euron married a Peruvian woman named Lady Figueroa, whom he met while she was selling goods inside the prison. And at the time of their wedding, Lady was seven months pregnant with Euron's child. But that's it, guys. The only th other thing that I can ha add is that after he's released in 2038, he will be extradited to the U.S. I know that that was a lot, but as the case currently stands, the Aruban police blame Natalie's family for their lack of evidence as they pushed for an arrest. Those who believe Joran Vandersloot and the Kalpo brothers are completely 100% innocent also believe that the Holloway family are to blame for a witch hunt against the boys and unfairly disrupting their lives. If you were paying attention, you clearly know how I feel about this case. I don't know whether or not the Calpo brothers were accomplices in the crime, willing or unwilling, but I'd bet my ass that Euron's father and godfather could intimidate them into saying whatever they wanted or into staying quiet. I know that was also very confusing, but there was just a lot in that case. But as always, I want to know what you think. Do you think that Euron is guilty? What about the Calpo brothers? Do you believe a rendition of the security guard story? Or perhaps you agree with me, thinking that Natalie was sold into sexual slavery. I feel for this poor girl and all of Natalie's friends. So, if you have any information, please contact the Natalie Holloway Resource Center at nhrc at crimemuseum.org or contact the confidential tip line at 407-237-2295. Again, the confidential tip line number is 407-237-2295.
please, even if you just have a hazy recollection or anything that could help in the slightest, let the proper authorities know. Natalie Holloway deserves justice. She deserves to be found, dead or alive. And Euron deserves to stand trial if he is indeed guilty in any way. The case notes and resources will be posted on my Instagram at Study, where I offer merchandise and a link to my case request form. If you have any cases you want me to do, pretty please just click and go fill it out, and I will cover that case ASAP. Thank you so much to Crime Ghoul for requesting this case. If y'all haven't already followed her on Instagram, please do. And don't forget to give us both a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Keep your sleuth book handy, and I'll see you Monday! Every Monday in October is a mini-episode for Spooktober, so please don't forget to tune in. Big shout-out to all of you for not wanting my head on a spike for being late with this episode. I appreciate your patience and understanding. Seriously, I do. I am having oral surgery next week, so I might have to skip next week's episode, but I'm not sure yet. I will keep y'all updated. As Monday is the last day to register to vote, please go to studentvote.org or vote.org and register to vote. If you need help registering or requesting a mail-in ballot, just let me know. It's part of my internship, so I've got resources out the wazoo to help you vote safely and well-informed. Again, thank you so much for your support. I'll see you sluice later. Love you.